electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Frank Holland. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead this hour. Value growth, value growth, value growth, value growth. We've been debating this ad nauseum here on CNBC as to which is the better place to put your money. But both are performing well this week as the S&P and the Nasdaq hit new highs. So why even choose? We will debate that. Plus, rent reality. The Biden administration extending the moratorium on evicting renters. It's already been having a major impact across the real estate industry. We'll look at the fallout. And plant-based meat, plant-based milk, and now plant-based tuna. A look at this fishy new trend. But we start with the markets. And today, Bob Bassani is down at the New York Stock Exchange with more for us. Bob? Kelly, we have new highs on the S&P 500. Strangely, not a lot of new highs on the individual stocks. Only 20, 25 on the S&P 500, but they're big names. Adobe's had great earnings number recently, new high there. Target's been on the new high list every day. Amex, and there's a surprise, ExxonMobil. You shouldn't be, though, with oil sitting new, new highs. Uh, energy stocks have been great outperformers. Earnings? Tale of two different companies, Nike, 80 percent above what the estimates were on their earnings report. Just a knockout number. That's a new high. But FedEx in line. They didn't beat the numbers. And remember, all these companies have been beating the numbers. That's not good enough. There's these whisper numbers that were higher. FedEx there, nothing wrong with the report, but disappointing to investors. Fortunately, FedEx is a bit of an outlier. Adobe, Kroger, Lennar, Oracle, they all had great numbers recently. So the earnings season is starting soon, and the early uh, reporters have been outstanding. FedEx, the one disappointment. Infrastructure stocks moving big this week. Now, a lot of cynicism about this infrastructure deal. $579 billion in new spending. That's an awful lot of money, folks, and it's moving the dial on infrastructure stocks. They only spend about $300 billion a year on infrastructure in the United States. $579 billion a lot, and the market's saying that. Look at these stocks that are moving this week. Terex, for example, the, the cranes and work platforms, and uh, Manitowic, uh, equipment rental companies like United Rental, and Deer was up. And look at these other countries, cent- uh, companies, Century Aluminum, Granite Construction, they do road construction. DICOM, big engineering company, Cleveland Cliffs, U.S. Steel in the material sector. You can see the market believes that this is moving these companies. Many of them are a lot smaller, $579 billion. That's a lot of money to these kinds of smaller companies. Kelly, back to you. Bob Bassani, thank you very much, sir. We really appreciate it today. All right, so are we in a buy-everything market? Value and growth are both higher. Ten of the 11 sectors are in the green for the week. Oil is up, copper is up, gold is up. The only thing seeing big moves lower this week are treasuries and Bitcoin. Is it sustainable and what is it telling us about the market today? Joining me is Bill Smead of Smead Capital Management. Bill, we wanted you to weigh in on this because we often just talk to you about value versus growth here. But again, it's the broader point that this is a good environment for stocks, even after what we heard from the Fed last week. Yeah, Kelly, the, the market's grinding higher, but there are so many warning signs that we're in a dream market that is going to ultimately cause heartache for people. Uh, n- n- not not to pick on Jim Cramer, but this morning he he was talking about the young people. He said they should put a bunch of money in the S and P five hundred index, and and then they should buy four SPACs. Well, guess what? 
the S&P 500 index is loaded with overvalued growth stocks that when inflation, which is real, not transitory hits, are going to have their P.E. ratios go way down. But Phil, isn't the point for people like me who don't want to have to think too hard about all this? Why can't I just go, you know what? All right, fine. Maybe it's inflation. Maybe it's deflation. Maybe it's reflation. Maybe it changes week to week to week. But the bottom line is that if you own the broad market, you will own the things that do well when they're doing well. And therefore, you sort of insure against your own inability to market time. And that works great about 80 percent of the time, except in 1929, 1972 and 1999. And all the tea leaves match up with those prior junctures. So the problem is uh, Warren Buffett talked about this in his annual meeting. He said he, he, he showed the 20 largest cap companies in the world in 1989 and asked you, where are they now? It, it, the, the thing regurgitates. And the problem is the index way over owns those things. And by the way, don't kid yourself. The antitrust wins are flying on both sides of the aisle this week. Uh, and that isn't good for the S&P 500 index. But do you really think we're at a 1929 like moment for the market? Because that implies a broad market crash of, you know, a, whether it's 29 or some of the more recent ones you picked, a broad market crash in the range of 20 plus percent. Well, whenever the market historically gets completely enamored with disruption, it is a nightmare. You, you see, the radio business disrupted everything in the 1920s. And then RCA, RCA went 25 years without making money. The Nifty 50, you know, uh, Coca-Cola and Disney were trading at 60 and 80 times earnings. And they woke up in 1982 at, at single digit multiples. See, it's not that these companies don't end up succeeding. It, it's that the compression in their price earnings ratio ruins their long term investment it, it, success. Look, it's eye watering to look at the forward P.E. of Disney, which is almost 50 times for Disney. That's remarkable. I mean, you can definitely feel a little uncomfortable with where some where stocks are trading here. But there's a huge difference between saying that Tesla might mean revert and that the entire market will. Right. Why can't the broad markets continue to do well, even if there's a major correction in some of the growth names? It, that's not the history. So from ninety nine to eight, energy was spectacular and a few other areas were spectacular. And it was very difficult to make money on anything else during that time period. And and that ultimately is the way this is going to play out. Uh, you, you know, it, 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 the market is not designed for 70 percent of the people to do well. Most people over long stretches of time suffer from stock market failure. And this episode is not going to be but any Bill, different. Most people over long stretches of time benefit from stock market success from just owning the market. You know, it, listen, if you said if, if you're worried about what's going to happen to your money by the end of this year, you're retiring next year. I take your point. But why tell people to get out of the market in order to avoid, you know, what might happen with growth stocks when they might want to be exposed and in it for, you know, a period of three, five, 10, 12, 15 years or more time? I'm not telling them to get out of the market. I'm telling them that that stock picking that is interested in economic growth and companies that will benefit from inflation are likely to do well like the 1970s. There was money to be made. Peter Lynch and mm -hmm. John Templeton and Warren Buffett built their track records on how well they did uh, in the aftermath of the 73-74 bear market. The, the, pro the problem is the one-size-fits-all mentality is just a sign of a financial euphoria. Uh, and, and, and that's 
that's what it is. Understood. And one more, because you have so many interesting uh, particular picks in here. And I think a lot of times value is a misnomer. It's really, it's almost like growth is understood stories and value is misunderstood <laughs> stories or something like that, right? If you, if you can find the real story and wait for the rest of the market to catch up, that's often how you can do well. So with that in mind, you like Merck. I know we've, you like housing. We've talked about home building before. You think it's a secular growth story. And you also like a lot of the oil and gas names because to put a point on the discussion we've been having here lately, you think fossil fuels could basically want to be one of the biggest beneficiaries of the ESG trend. Yeah, Buffett is such a brilliant guy. He says, the people that think we're going to make a quick transition to uh, uh, positive carbon transportation and the people that don't think we'll ever make the transition, they're both crazy. So put yourself in continental resources. They have 4.36 barrels of proven reserve per share. That's about over $300 of proven reserves per share. And their enterprise value is about uh, 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 four, uh, 50 bucks. So you're paying 50 bucks for $300 of oil in the ground, and they've got all the property outside of federal lands to poke holes. And a lot of that will be used to create electricity to charge people's cars someday. They win both directions. Well, in this market, you've been winning in both value and growth this week. But Bill Smead here to make a strong case for stock picking and some of those names in particular. Thanks for your time. We appreciate it. Have a great weekend, Bill. Thanks, Kelly. Under the surface and kind of to what Bill was talking about, there are areas of the market that came out roaring but have lately suffered a reality check. Bertha Coombs is here with a look at some of the healthcare IPOs, the buzziest ones, Bertha, that have been falling back down to earth. Yeah, a lot of them, Kelly. You know, the S&P healthcare sector hits another record high today, but it's been a different story for high-flying health tech firms in particular that have gone public this year. The latest example, genetic testing firm 23andMe, down 5% since listing via Richard Branson's Virgin SPAC just a week ago. Then there's longtime unicorn Oscar Health, which sank 10% in its March debut. It's trading in bear market territory, down more than 40% from its IPO price. And hims and hers, not a very pretty chart there. The telehealth platform, which this week acquired a teledermatology firm, also in bear market territory, down more than 35% since listing in January. Part of the problem, Credit Suisse analyst Jalindra Singh told me recently, is that investors are still trying to get to know these SPAC-listed firms after the fact. For Clover Health... Well, that has meant a roller coaster ride. Short sellers have questioned the financials of the tech-enabled Medicare provider that listed through Chamath Palapatia's SPAC in January. Shares were pummeled back in February. Short positions rose. They're at about 36%, according to FactSet, which then made Clover into a meme trade play. You see that jump there in the beginning of June, squeezed higher over six straight sessions earlier this month. But now it's been down again, 10 of the last 13 sessions and still down about 16% from its listing. Fascinating. Kelly. Bertha, thank you very much for bringing that to us, our Bertha Coombs. Now, even as the public markets recoil at some of those buzzy healthcare IPOs this year, venture capital funds are continuing to rake in the dough. Four different firms had billion-dollar IPO wins just yesterday. Confluent and Doxim two of the reasons why. CNBC.com senior tech reporter Ari Levy is here with more details for us. Ari? Yeah, Kelly, um, two big IPOs yesterday, Confluent on the enterprise software side, um, valued in the you know, $11 billion neighborhood. Early investors, Index and Benchmark each own stakes worth over a billion dollars. That's what happens when you get in early pre-revenue, betting on uh, founders, betting on ideas. Um, and then with Doximity, 
a uh, you know what we call a LinkedIn for uh, LinkedIn for doctors, um, the Emergence Capital, which has been probably the biggest uh, winner in enterprise software, certainly one of the biggest winners uh, through Zoom and Viva, going back to Salesforce. Uh, they got in at the very early stages of Doximity and, and now own you know about a billion three worth of Doximity shares. So. Uh, yeah, when these venture firms get in on, on the ground floor and they see these sort of $10 billion companies, huge outcomes uh, uh, come their way. Right. So the IPO market already still seems largely friendly. I mean, we just looked at uh, Mr. Carwash, which opened about 25 percent above its pricing uh, earlier today. So we're seeing pretty good first day pops. We're seeing a lot of different kinds of industries come to the market. We've seen a ton of innovation in, in the forms that this is all taking. And yet to Bertha's point, a lot of these have left a bad taste in people's mouths. The performance over the long run has not been there the same way that it has in previous years. I don't know if that's because more of them are SPACs or what have you. Is that trickling back through the VC world yet? It seems to me that it's very um, company and industry specific. So for companies that are performing well, that are delivering, that are you know, continuing to boost their margins and continue to take market share, certainly if it's an internet uh, software-based company, um, you're really not seeing such a challenge. The, the broader tech market has obviously pulled back this year. Uh, and so that has that has hurt some of the stock prices along with the broader market. But, uh, you know, for these companies that have big addressable markets, that have strong margins, uh, which is very different than some of the companies Bertha was talking about, you know, Doximity is, is a tremendously profitable company, even though it's in health. Uh, you know, as, as long as they're showing those metrics and the growth, um, you know, the investors are still very hungry for these for these assets. Yeah. And it would seem, you know, you'd expect the VC world to be flush with cash for some time. I was just reading the other day about pension shortfalls. <laughs> That's one place they look to make up, you know, those shortfalls is in the kinds of returns that VC typically promises. Uh, Ari, thanks very much. We appreciate it. Ari Levy with the state of play. Coming up, it's been a volatile year for shares of this media company that went from trader darling to being left behind. Credit Suisse is giving it an upgrade, though, saying if content is king, uh, in streaming, this company wears the crown. We will tell you its name and explore how long its reign can last. Plus, the CDC is extending the national eviction ban for what it says is just one final month. But at what cost to small landlords whose tenants aren't paying and who also aren't getting the federal aid promised them? That's after the break. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow today. Pursue your tomorrow with P. Jim, a leading global asset manager. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. 
Welcome back to The Exchange. The CDC is extending the national eviction ban through the end of July. The White House says it's an all-hands-on-deck challenge to help both landlords who are hurting while at the same time keeping families in their homes. Diana Olick has more on why the billions of dollars in federal aid are not getting to the landlords who are suffering as a result of this. Diana? Yeah, Kelly, roughly 6 million tenants are behind on their rent and about $46 billion in federal aid is available. But it's getting that cash to the tenants and landlords that has proved incredibly difficult. Now, with another extension of the eviction ban, landlords are again left in the lurch. Landlord Howard Simon hasn't received the rent on his Massachusetts apartment since last October. He's out about $7,000 so far. I have mortgages. I have uh, uh, expenses for repairs. While about $34 billion in federal aid has been distributed to states for back rent and utilities, getting that cash to landlords has been an onerous process because the tenant must be involved. In my particular instance, the tenant is not cooperating with even completing the application. Small landlords make up the majority of the rental housing market, owning 23 million units, and some are struggling to get delinquent tenants even to answer the phone. If the rental assistance bureaucracy is a monster, then the local governments that created them are Dr. Frankenstein. Dean Hunter is a landlord himself and argues they all should have been included in the small business relief package, the so-called PPP. This is the most ex excessively and overly broad taking of private property in my lifetime. There will be no eviction tsunami. What there is going to be a tsunami of is a loss of naturally occurring uh, affordable housing because small landlords are going to sell their property. Now, as part of the extension announced yesterday, the Biden administration added several new measures designed to streamline getting that money where it needs to go. It's also encouraging rental assistance programs to work more closely with courts and to automate some of the rental assistance as so much rent today is paid over apps. Kelly? Diana, was yesterday's announcement a surprise? No. Not at all. I mean, most expected it to be extended. Some expected it to be extended through September. But there is the question still uh, hanging over the Supreme Court as to whether or not the CDC eviction moratorium is actually legal. So I think by extending it one month, that's what they felt they could do until they get that decision. But most did expect it to be extended. OK, Diane Olick, thank you very much for that report. And landlords are saying rather than extending the moratorium, which does leave renters saddled with debt, and owners holding the bag, there are better solutions that are actually proving more effective. Joining me now is Bob Pinnegar. He is the president and CEO of the National Apartment Association. Bob, it's good to have you. Let's start with some of the state-by-state -state experiments that you think are working better. Well, you know, some states have shown that they're willing to work with the industry and actually have been able to put together programs that are functioning rather well. Uh, Virginia is an example of a program that was not very friendly to the industry in the beginning. But working with the industry, they were able to create something that works well. Same thing's happening in Pennsylvania, and Colorado is another standout program. But there's painfully few programs that are like that across the country. I mean, it's probably a little bit of a reputational issue, right? I'm sure landlords are up there with calling, you know, the cable company in terms of, you know, how much people love them as a, as a group, right? With, as an anonymous group without putting faces on. I thought Diana's report very well did illustrate who this hurts and that warning that we just heard about how it could actually result in a shortage of affordable uh, apartment rentals. Do you think that could really bear out if, that, if this continues the way it's going? It's already happening. There's studies that have been done out there that have indicated in the small, the independent rental owner category that somebody who owns you know, one to say five single family homes 
which is 88% of the 14.9 million single-family home rentals we have across the country, that 11% have sold one property, 12% of the respondents have sold their entire portfolio. So the small owners that didn't have the cash to survive this are simply cashing out and to try to save their retirement income. Of course. And then you think those uh, that turnover is putting people into these into this class of ownership who are looking to make more money by maybe upgrading the units, trying to sell them at a higher price. I mean, because can they actually do anything in the meantime until this issue is resolved? Or are all of the existing renters staying put? Uh, it, you know, at this point, the existing renters are, sta- are staying put because of the, of the order. But the industry, in an unprecedented way, whether it be a small operator or a large national company, have been working with their residents to set up payment plans to assist them with applying for the funds in the jurisdictions when they can. We have one member in Texas that's actually set up a computer lab in their common area. And you know, as, as I've been explaining to di- different outlets that have been asking us questions, is if you know that the dollars are going to be coming and the person is actually working with you cooperatively, it doesn't make any sense to evict because mm-hmm. the eviction process is long. It can take up to 90 days to evict somebody. The courts are going to be backlogged with not just evictions, but with just other things in general, other legal matters. And so it could take months for an eviction to be processed. So if you can work with the resident that's that's communicating with you in the unit and keep them there, that's what's going to happen. Yeah. So what happens now? I mean, there I thought in one of Biden's plans, there was actually uh, rental assistance going to landlords to try to make them at least you know, make up for some of the lost money here. I don't know if any of that's happened, if there were any targeted relief measures that have, have made their way through. But Diana also mentioned the Supreme Court. What happens if they say, actually, this was never constitutional in the first place? Well, the, you know, the Supreme Court is really going to judge on did the administration and the agency have the authority to do this, which really goes to future crises that come along. Uh, because we do feel, and we've been a participant in those court cases, that they have overextended their legal authority given to the CDC. Uh, But the bigger question is that, you know, while there's a large amount of money that has been authorized by Congress to provide relief to renters and to property owners, they're still, at this point, based as of March of this year, based upon information from Moody's and the Mortgage Bankers Association, $18.6 billion in rent debt that is unfunded. And by the time we get to the end of July, that could easily be 25 or $26 billion. So this is a growing crisis. And the faster we can get dollars out, great. But also, the quicker we can get the economy open and get people working again is really going to be our long-term solution. Yeah, and then it would start to take care of itself, perhaps, as people work it out, you know, kind of situation by situation. Uh, Bob, thanks for joining us today to explain the position that landlords are in. Thanks for having me. Of the National Apartment Association. Still ahead here on The Exchange, Mr. Car Wash, a car wash company, just like it sounds, going public with a 30% pop here on the New York Stock Exchange today. We'll bring you all the details of this $4 billion IPO. And don't forget, you can watch us live using the CNBC app anytime. We're back right after this.
Welcome back to The Exchange. The Dow is up 260 points at the high of the session. We're up 215 right now, two-thirds of a percent gain. And once again, the blue chips are leading the way today. Wait till we tell you about Nike. That's a big reason. S&P 500 up a quarter percent. NASDAQ fractionally lower. And let's talk about what's going on with the swoosh today. One of its best days ever after the company beat earnings and sales estimates. The shares are up 14 and a half percent. They booked record revenue in North America. That's the biggest market. Digital sales for the quarter up 41 percent from last year up 147% from 2019. This is the best day for Nike since last March. Just an incredible story about corporate transformation and the pandemic. And if you think that's a big move, look at Virgin Galactic. What a story this is. Up 34% today, the best day ever after getting the green light from the FAA to actually fly passengers to space. They have three more spaceflight tests planned before they can complete development. They have 600 reservations for tickets on future flights. They're sold between $200,000 and $250,000 each. The shares are up 70% in June alone, but as it was just... As I was just informed, this green light could mean possibly, maybe, does Richard Branson make it into space before Jeff Bezos? Remember, Bezos is supposed to take off on July 20th, I think. Let's get over to Tyler Matheson now for our CNBC News update. Hi, Ty. All right. Thank you very much, Kelly. Uh, anytime we hear a sound, we concentrate in that area. That's how a fire department official describes the continuing search for survivors of the Florida condo collapse, an effort complicated now by rain and strong winds. Four are confirmed dead and another 159 unaccounted for. The state's governor says the search effort is the top priority now, but an investigation into how it happened is getting underway. We'll have to figure out why did this happen, and that answer isn't uh, necessarily apparent right now, uh, but, but it will be identified, and I think that anyone who was affected by this directly wants that answer, but also we need to know, is this a bigger issue or is this something unique to the building? Shepard Smith is at the scene and he will report live throughout the afternoon and tonight on the news at 7 o'clock Eastern time. Derek Chauvin's request for a new trial has been denied. His sentencing hearing for the murder of George Floyd is scheduled to begin about an hour from now. Governor Brian Kemp is denouncing the Justice Department's just-announced lawsuit against Georgia's new election law. The suit says the law discriminates against black voters. Kemp calls the challenge part of a, quote, far-left agenda that undermines election integrity. Kelly? Back to you. Tyler, I will see you soon. Thank you very much. A new exchange focuses on the G in ESG. We'll talk about Didi's eye-popping valuation and trouble ahead, maybe for the Robinhood IPO. It's all coming up in Rapid Fire right after this. Welcome back. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar. It's time for Rapid Fire, and here to break down today's headlines are Bob Bassani, Dear Jabosa, and Dan Primack. He is the business editor at Axios. Welcome, everybody. And we will begin with Twilio and Asana, which are becoming the first two companies to duelist shares on a new Silicon Valley exchange called the Long-Term Stock Exchange. It says it emphasizes, yes, long-term strategy over short-term gains. They focus on the G and ESG. That means governmental. Conditions for listing include aligning executive compensation with long-term performance, more consciously thinking about customers' employees, and explaining how the company's board oversees long-term strategy. Shares of Asana and Twilio moving in opposite directions today. Asana's up about 6%. It's doubled since its IPO in September. Bob Pisani, what are the practical uh, implications of listing on the LTSE in terms of share ownership, in terms of liquidity? I mean, are there any? 
No, not much. Um, it, there, this, by the way, used to ha it doesn't happen much anymore. It used to happen when you had a lot of small regional exchanges. So you'd have these dual listings where they'd list on the regional exchange and then maybe on a national exchange. So it's interesting. Look, I, I've interviewed Eric Reese, the head of uh, the long-term exchange, uh, a wonderful guy, uh, a, a great idea. Here's the problem. For many, many years, you've been able to have what's called UTP, unlisted trading privileges. That is, if you list, say, at the New York Stock Exchange, NASDAQ can also trade it and vice versa. And right. all, basically, you could trade on all of them. So that's greatly reduced the need to have another exchange out there. As for ESG, you know, you can do that on the New York Stock Exchange and on the NASDAQ as well. I laud them for the concept. Let's keep pushing the, the idea behind more ESG. I think it's wonderful. I just don't know if you need another exchange for that. Dan, what do you think this is uh, all about? I mean, in terms of the practical impact for these companies themselves, for the shareholder bases, and, and for the impact it'll have on the investment community, broadly speaking. Yeah, as Bob said, I don't think of this much as an exchange the way we think of exchanges. I think of this more as a kind of good housekeeping seal of approval, whereby these companies are really making pledges. And LTSC does kind of have this regulatory body that's going to keep them to those pledges. And the important thing I think about Twilio and Asana going today, I think they kind of broke the dam. I've heard from a lot of companies, public and private, who are interested in this because they believe in these principles, but they didn't want to be the first ones out of the game. Deirdre? I got questions. I mean, Bob, maybe you can help me out here. What's the difference? You talk to any CEO and they say they are already focused on the long term. You've got organizations to try and help keep them accountable. Plus, long term stock exchange backed by venture capitalists who typically have a lifespan for their funds of seven to 10 years. I wonder, are they going to put their money where their mouth is and hold on for the long term? What's long term for them? Yeah, it's a, no, that's a very good point. And I don't think uh, that's a good gotcha on the uh, on the investors there. I, if you talk to the NYSE or NASDAQ about this and they, they'll look at you and say, are we against ESG? We're happy to talk more about ESG. We're aligned with the concept more. There's no reason why you can't do it down here. So, as I said, I think it's just it, it eliminates a lot of the reason when nobody is arguing against the concept that you're talking about. All right. Well, let's see if anyone's uh, going to IPO on the exchange, because right now we've got still a couple who are looking at the more traditional route. Uh, and despite the boom this year, these names are still kind of waiting in the wings. First, on the one hand, you have Didi, the Chinese ride sharing giant, which is getting there. It just priced at a potential $60 billion valuation. They're among the top five largest privately held startups in the world. Meanwhile, Robinhood's IPO reportedly delayed by an SEC probe into its crypto trading segment. Well, its valuation according to sources telling CNBC, could be upwards of $30 billion. Dan, when should we expect these to go primetime? Uh, well, Didi sooner. Uh, so Robinhood probably sometime after Labor Day. Didi we could see in a few weeks, right? Because yesterday they came out with their terms. They should be going in a few weeks. Maybe July 4th messes with that a bit, so it's three weeks. The thing about Didi, which I find most interesting, is the shareholder base, namely Uber, which I think is the second largest shareholder uh, with a, a double-digit stake. Uber, despite what it is, is really an ETF for ride hail companies in other countries, and Didi is by far the largest of those. Deirdre? It'll be interesting because we've talked about this before. I mean, these companies have received very high valuations in private markets. Uber, the best example of that. Remember when we thought that it might go public at a $120 billion valuation? That got quickly scaled down. It's trading now below $100 billion. Public market investors have not been 
so excited about ride sharing. Uber and Lyft have underperformed the broader markets since they went public. So Didi sort of has a tough road ahead of it, already pricing, you know, around at the highest level of its range, $67 billion. Some had thought it would go for maybe $100 billion. So we'll see if sentiment has warmed up. But when you talk about Uber, I mean, it's negative year to date. and It was supposed to be this big reopening play. No, Uber has been, you know, just a... I don't want to say tragic, that's too strong, but but that one is a story all, all to itself. Uh, and the, the struggle of a lot of these companies who have reached their mature valuations in the private markets once they hit the public space, maybe Snowflake is an exception to that. Mm-hmm. Bob, I just want to go back to the point we were making about IPOs, because if Twilio and Asana are co-listing, when should we expect to see people choose the long-term stock exchange for an IPO? And if NASDAQ and uh, NYSE were to lose market share as a result of that, would it be a business, like a, a real business threat? The, the money that's made here um, uh, is on the listing fees. Uh, and uh, so the NYSE will charge $100,000 to $500,000 for listing fees. NASDAQ typically about $100,000. Uh, and, and they're substantial fees. They make money. It's a part of their revenue stream. So, yes, there'll be fights over that. I just don't see the NASDAQ and NYSE losing their listing supremacy uh, anytime soon. They, they fight amongst themselves for, for listings. For various reasons, including the price of listing, uh, but also just the different styles and the way the NYSE and NASDAQ are are run. I I think it's wonderful to have a little competition here. I just don't see it as being a a massive story uh, um, in in the near term in terms of getting new companies to list down there. Dan, last quick word on this. Is there anyone that you hear in terms of Scuttlebutt that could be first to actually IPO on the LTSE? I'm not, and I don't get the sense that LTSC is really making that case very hard to people right now. I, I think they want to get a critical mass of companies listed there, and then they can go try to get somebody who wants to actually go first there. Yeah, fair enough. I'm thinking about the likes of Warby Parker. I think they were like one of the original B Corps, you know, somebody who's very important for that to be part of their ethos. Who knows? We'll see. All right. Up next, the worst performing Fang stock this year just got a big upgrade from Credit Suisse, bumping the streaming giant to outperform 586 price targets at 527. They're saying subscriber growth should normalize into the end of the year and the upcoming slate of new seasons of ultra popular shows like Stranger Things justifies their rating. This has been a tough one. I mean, Dan, for the last at least year, maybe two years now, there's been a big debate over whether Netflix should even be part of the Fang trade because it's kind of been going its own way. It faces a lot of competition. Just the other day, we talked to Laura Martin here, who thinks they're literally funding their competitors because they won't take advertising dollars. Are you surprised to see an outperform here on from Credit Suisse today? I am, particularly given the timing of this, because if you look in Europe and particularly the U.K., Netflix is getting talked about in terms of new regulations, right? When we talk in the U.S., it's Apple, Amazon, Facebook, and Google. Netflix is in Netflix is part of the fang in, in, in Europe. So I think it's an interesting time, given that they might be facing some things that have nothing to do with subscriber growth, but have to do with legislators. What's the concern on the regulatory front there? Uh, similar concerns that you have here about kind of market power, and market dominance. The difference is Netflix, kind of like Microsoft, hasn't gotten included in the U.S. In the U.K., it is. Yeah, Deirdre, I don't think, you know, maybe a couple of years ago you could have made that case here, but even then it would be up against the whole traditional TV and movie industry. Nowadays, again, it, it's amazing to see how close Disney's forward PE is to Netflix's now. They're both around the 50 mark. Incredible. I'm, yeah, and I might say even if you could make that case here and it was under regulatory scrutiny, so what? Investors don't seem to care much. Um, it hasn't been built into the stock prices or performances of the other fang. 
Netflix, that was an interesting call saying that it's still the king of content. What I found most interesting over the last few months is Netflix is perhaps its push into merchandise. If it is king and it is producing the best content, bringing Amblin partners into the fold as well. This merchandise business, does that expand? Does it turn into theme parks? Mm -hmm. Does Netflix turn into Disney in the long term? Uh, So I think that there's finally talk about that diverse or differentiated revenue stream. The next step for Netflix is maybe what we're starting to see. Yeah, I agree with you. Bob, a quick final word on this. Well, two things. Number one, yes, as you mentioned, maturity. They are slowly becoming a mature company, but they still do well. They made four million new subscribers last quarter. That's that's not bad. And they're still adding subscribers. Number two, the company makes buckets of money. They made six dollars in 2020. I see them making almost eleven dollars this year. They're going to make thirteen dollars next year. That's pretty good. Yes, it's 50 times forward, but the, overall, they're still pulling in a lot of money and a lot of subscribers. And I, so it's underperformed in the last year, but it has dramatically outperformed in the last five years. In fact, it's had the same performance as Apple in the, over a five-year period. So take it out a little bit further than the last 12 months, and, and Netflix has done pretty well. All right. And it still earns its uh, fang name, I guess, although to Dan's point, maybe that's not what it wants if it's going to be under increased scrutiny. Uh, before we go, guys, we just want to mention the trading debut today of Mr. Car Wash. It's such a fun one to talk about. It, it's gone pretty well. Uh, Bob, what would you add here in terms of its, is it any kind of um, sort of teller of the IPO climate in general? Um, no, first off, uh, it, the only thing that people didn't like was, oh, it priced at 15 and we're talking about 15 to 17. And look where it is here, 21. So you can argue, look at now, all the yeah. money, look at all the money the average, you know, the person might be making here who might have gotten in here uh, at, uh, at, at the average uh, price there. So the important thing is it's done well today. The, the initial subscribers, the people bought it last night, they're doing it really well. The average return, by the way, Kelly, this year on an IPO is 18%. And here's something interesting. Almost all of the gains are made on the first or second day of, of the Bob, IPOs. This that, is, that's this, not that unusual. This is what drives me crazy, though. Does that is it only from the time that they actually that the shares were publicly available? Because if you include the change from the, you know, what they priced the IPO at, that means the public never got any of that 18%. That's right. So if you look at, yeah, that's exactly right. So the people bought in yesterday at 15, they were sold the IPO from the underwriter yesterday at $15. Those people today at $20 are doing really well. But if you were an average schlub who bought it at the open at $20 and you want to sell today, exactly. uh, no, that's right. a good observation. And that's the classic, you know, uh, argument about what really goes on. We tend to look at it from the point of view of the guy who bought it exactly. from the insider exactly. the people last night. I know. It's, it's just a weird quirk. We, we have to leave, to go. But, Dan, the business model, I, I'm looking here. The average car wash for a base car wash is $8. But if they offer, like my place around the corner, a monthly service, then, you know, car wash as a service is one. That's one of the favorite business models uh, of our time. It is. And, and by the way, as Bob said, that $15 in the pricing last night, that doesn't reflect anything about the company. That reflects something about the bankers. The mm-hmm. bankers had too high a price. It has nothing to do with the company. Yeah, there was a lot of debt on it. But whenever a company does much better or much worse than its IPO price, talk to the banks, not the company. We'll leave it there. Dan, thanks for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Dan Primack, along with Deirdre Bosa and Bob Bassani for Rapid Fire. Up next, out of office, out of mind? Not necessarily, says a former Yahoo executive who has changed her mind on the work from home. She'll join us to discuss that next.
Welcome back. Depending on who you ask, the future of work is either remote or it's back in the office or it's something in between. In fact, Adobe settled on a hybrid model this week, allowing employees to work from home 50% of the time. The where to work debate isn't new, but given how widespread remote work was during the pandemic, is it finally here to stay? Joining us now is Jackie Reeses. She's a CEO of Post House Capital. She serves on a bunch of boards and she was quoted in this Times article, Jackie. It's great to have you where they say there's no evidence that chance meetings at the office boost innovation. In other words, kind of adding to the no need to go back camp. Are you now in that camp? You know, I've always had the same philosophy, even when I wrote the memo in 2013, which is companies have to take the right approach with the tools they have available, the culture they have and their own talent needs. And so I think depending upon the situation any company is in, That's how they should think about what model of work makes sense for them. They have to think about it in the context of hiring and retaining the best talent. And so I don't think there's a monolithic answer for all companies. Because I can see two different stories in the times a year from now. One of them is, ah, forget it. We all tried the work from home thing. Turns out it's a bust. Everyone's going back to the office. The other is, no, it actually is different this time because, you know, I couldn't have hosted a TV show from home prior to last year. Now people are doing it all the time. Absolutely. I mean, I look in the last year how different the frameworks are that we've created in order to work. I mean, first, we've created lots of different options for how to create flexibility in a work schedule um, and how we were hire and retain talent. We also have a lot better tools for how we operate, whether it be video conferencing or uh, facilities in our own homes to do these types of videos and collaboration and communication with our teams Companies have also created a lot of adaptations around the way they work with employees. And those adaptations around benefits and time zone management and compensation have all advanced the flexibility for different models that might work going forward. I also have found that tools like Slack, you know, office chat, that makes you it gives you that real time environment that you previously could only have in the office without, you know, clogging your inbox or missing calls. I mean, it's not perfect, but it's pretty good in some cases. And like you said, a lot of this is a case by case basis. I wonder if companies, though, invited some of this upon themselves. I mean, we had talked on the show prior to the pandemic about the revolt against the open floor plan workspace. It was driving people crazy. So is there a way to actually make work itself more productive? Yeah, I mean, you have to really think about your work environment as the place that will enable you to be the most creative and best at your job. And so the idea that that is a open floor plan office or even an office itself is really tired and and requires a lot of challenge because I don't think people actually do their best work in the constructs that we had. I know for a lot of engineers and tech companies, for example, we heard in a lot of different corporate situations that I was in that being in an open floor plan was the worst place for them to be productive. And we had a lot of employees who preferred very quiet alone space so that they could do their best work. So I think we've just opened up the aperture of all those ideas of what's acceptable and what companies are willing to explore to be far more creative in the way that we think about a work environment. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you really think about it, we still have this convention that work has to happen Monday through Friday, nine to five. And thankfully, this last year has really enabled us to think far beyond that into how to be the most creative you can be. Right. As long as you're also getting that downtime, I think people are realizing that that, that's key. I mean, we talk about this at home. How do you make sure that you're not on call 24-7, 365? Last uh, question on this. You're an, an investment firm now. What have you guys settled on? 
Well, my firm is very small, and so it's very easy to have everybody work from home. We also create structures where we make sure that people get together so that they could have that space to have connectivity. And so while we enable five-day-a-week flexibility, we also schedule a lot of very specific time to get together and make sure that we spend both social time and work time together when meetings are important to be in person together. Yeah, so many trend stories on this from the rise of like the return of the corporate retreat to the need for third spaces like, you know, what Starbucks was for people to work, but maybe be away from home so they don't drive each other crazy. No comment. Absolutely. uh, On our own situation there. Jackie, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a really thoughtful piece and uh, especially with your firsthand experience. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Jackie Reese's. Still ahead after this break, move over plant-based meat. Faux seafood is shaping up to be the next hot alt food trend. We're going to look at the up-and-coming players in this space next. Welcome back to The Exchange. The alternative food stocks Beyond Meat and Oatly have been surging after their uh, debuts. Oatly's case over the past month, they're up 15%, 21% respectively. Investors just seem to have a big appetite for these names lately. Will alt milks and meat stick with consumers? Kate Rogers joins me now with a look at an alternative seafood company now that can't keep its products in stock. Kate? Hey, Kelly, that's right. It's called the Plant-Based Seafood Company, and it didn't quite start out that way. The all-female, family-owned and operated business from Gwynn's Island, Virginia, sold traditional seafood for 20 years. But CEO Monica Talbert tells us after seeing what she called, quote, hidden practices in the seafood industry from overfishing to child labor and mislabeling, they decided to pursue new products without using fish. We wanted to do something about it. And we thought, if not us, then who? And that's when we really made the decision that we were going to do something to create change. So they started out with a plant-based crab cake featuring artichokes instead of crab that really took off. From there, the company then launched coconut shrimp, scallops, and more, all currently sold out online. They're also pushing into select retail stores and closing a seed funding round. Nielsen data showed that alternative seafood options are still lagging alternative meat products, but they did see a big sales boost in 2020 and continue to be 12% above the total meat alternative category as a whole through the end of March. Now, while there is not yet a market leader like a Beyond Meat or Impossible Foods, there are some standout players in the space. Tyson is currently working on a shrimp alternative set to hit the market by 2022. Gathered Foods, which makes good catch tuna, has raised $26.35 million from the likes of Lance Bass of Sync and Paris Hilton, and also Nestle, which has launched a plant-based tuna alternative in Switzerland. Kelly, back over to you. As unappetizing as this sounds to me, you know, that Subway story this week, Kate, about how there was some investigation that found Mm -hmm. their tuna didn't have any tuna in it. That's also pretty terrifying. They should just say, yeah, we're way ahead of the trend. You know, Subway, alternative tuna, you know, (laughs) since 2009. Kate Rogers, we appreciate Yeah, I don't think that was quite intended to be alternative, but I there you go. I don't think so either. And the worst part is that it tastes good. Kate Rogers reporting. That does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.